folks, this one's a doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Boom. I only needed to look at that for half of it. Oh my gosh. And then I was able to just say the rest of it without looking. What a moment. I know. I know. Do you remember when one of our kids, I think it was our middle one, was really little, like one year old. And she would run around the house. And whenever she was excited, she would go, boom, that night for boom dynamite. Yeah. I always have the urge to say that after you are wrapping up the little introduction, but nobody would get it. That's true. But now they would. But now our patrons would get yes, it. Yes, just our patrons. No one yeah. else would. Yes. Boon exclusively night. on Patreon. <laughs> boom, that night. <laughs> All right. My dear, what are you drinking tonight? So... I'm going back in with another Strawberries and Cream Dr. Pepper Zero. Ooh. Those are so good. Nice. I've, I'm have i fully are. converted to the Zero Sugar Dr. Pepper. Really? Yes. The two that I've tried. Hmm. Now, I did snag one of those the other day, and they were surprisingly good. Yeah, right? I will say. Yeah. Now, right. I don't know that I would say as good as, but definitely good. Like, I can live with this. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm trying to not drink an absurd amount of sugar every day, mm-hmm. like this will definitely do. And it'll, I'm happy about take it. take the place for the time being. Yeah. What do you have? Well, today, I, well, not today, the other night, I decided to open up this bottle of whiskey that I'd been yeah. holding on to for a while. Um, it's Willet bourbon. And uh, yeah, so I'm uh, just sipping on that neat tonight. Fancy. So, I know. I know. Such a fancy gent. I know. I, I, <laughs> this is kind of funny. I assumed for a long time that whiskey aged like wine, where once it's in the bottle, you know, you just keep it as long as you possibly can. And the longer it's in there, the better it'll get. Whiskey mm-hmm. does not age like that. Once it's in the <laughs> bottle, it's <laughs> done aging. In fact, it can get gross if you let it sit for too long. So ah. I was like, oh, well, then I'm not going to make this wait anymore. So I've well, been holding it for like know. five years. So it was time. The more you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. We do not do a feel-good fact on Patreon. Instead, we play a little game called... Headline Hijinks. That's right. So this is the segment where I will read two bonkers headlines, and you have to decide which one you think is real and which one I made up. I'll read each headline twice, and then the choice is yours. Okay. You've gotten good at this. I feel okay. like... It's only gotten harder since like episode, Patreon episode four. <laughs> so <laughs> It is a 50-50 shot that you're going to get it right. It's true. So headline one, Florida man kidnaps scientist to make his dog immortal. You would choose a Florida man one. Okay. Headline two, to compound the drama. Florida man arrested for assault after alcohol-fueled unicycle joyride turned crime spree. <laughs> okay. Okay, so headline one, Florida man kidnaps scientist to make his dog immortal. Headline two, Florida man arrested for assault after alcohol-fueled unicycle joyride turned crime spree. (laughs) All right, I'm going to say the fake one, surprisingly enough, is the second one. You're right. Okay. I realized as I was reading it, this is pretty wordy. And we've had some wordy ones that were like the real one. Yeah. But I was like, that might be a giveaway. That wasn't the giveaway for me. What was it? 
the fact that it was an alcohol-fueled unicycle ride, which I'm sure isn't impossible. It's Florida man. With Florida man, all things are possible. (laughs) We know this. I'm just thinking how hard it is to ride a unicycle without alcohol in your system. And Mm -hmm. it's got to be harder with it. Yeah. If you're a pro, I mean, you're going to do what you're going to do. But Florida man could do it. Probably. I know that he could. Probably. But I, I saw kidnapping a scientist as much higher in the probability of really? Florida man's skills than alcoholic unicycle rampage. I feel like the alcoholic unicycle would be more in the wheelhouse of Florida man. <laughs> we they could kidnapped? have a whole separate episode about all of the Florida man happenings yeah, and that's true. the likelihood of them happening at all. <laughs> I was scrolling through Florida man headlines mm-hmm. and it was like, scroll, <laughs> scroll, <laughs> scroll as I was trying to pick which one. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was a fun uh, time. Amazing. Okay. You ready to jump in? I'm ready. Okay. So for today's Patreon exclusive episode, we're covering another true crime story. In the idyllic tight-knit village of Loxton, which is in Somerset, England, a man by the name of Mr. Peter Tiarks received a phone call that would shatter the peaceful September morning and would rock the press and the public alike. Miss Noreen O'Connor, a longtime family nurse for the Tiarks, was on the line with an urgent message. She said, quote, Come at once as something terrible has happened to Marie. She was in the power of some evil. End quote. Mm. Hang on, Kev. This one's a doozy. It's ominous. It is. I'm ready. So the village of Loxton is like a tiny, tiny little village in Somerset, England. With just a few hundred residents and roughly 50 homes and buildings, it's a quiet and unassuming place even to this day. Located near Weston, Supermare, which is like a classic English seaside town, it's relatively close to the sea and to the popular tourist location. And that adds an additional layer of shock to this story because things like this just don't happen there. And so let's start by talking about Mr. Frank Tiark. I've seen it Tiark and Tiarks, so I'm just going to roll with whatever comes sure. out. So Frank was a successful businessman working as the director of the Bank of England, as well as managing various other businesses. His family immigrated to England from Germany sometime in the 1840s and had all been met with great opportunity, great success, and then with great wealth. Ooh, Frank yeah. and his wife, Emmy, uh, or Emmy Marie, lived in Loxton. Emmy was also German, and the two fell in love and married in Hamburg, Germany, sometime in the late 1800s. But by 1899, Emmy needed full-time care due to suffering from some sort of debilitating medical condition. That same year, a woman by the name of Frederica Maria Bowles, or Maria as she was better known, had come to England from Germany, most likely with the Tiarks, and began working as a nurse and a caregiver to Emmy, and quickly became a true companion and a friend to Emmy as well. As was relatively common in wealthier homes, house staff, nurses, gardeners, etc., particularly ones who lived in the home with the family that they worked for, became more like daisy chain family members and genuinely loved friends. And that was definitely true in this case as well. So this was not just like a person on staff. They were very, very, very close. Yeah, basically part of the family. Yes. That makes sense. The Tiarks took great care of all of their staff and shared a special affinity with Maria due to their shared German heritage and to her kindness and love for Emmy. And things hummed on pretty seamlessly for many years. However, when World War II broke out, it became illegal for German and Austrian residents to work in England, and a period of internment was instituted. 
So basically, every German or Austrian resident in the UK over the age of 16 was classed as enemy aliens. More than 70,000 UK residents underwent a process called internment, where they were put into one of several camps set across the UK. And one by one, each of these residents underwent a sort of background check, and then they were placed in one of three categories. Category A meant long-term internment, so they would remain in the camp for an extended period of time. Category B meant no internment, but they were placed under certain restrictions. And then category C meant no internment and no restrictions. Oh, okay, yeah. So Maria filed for an exemption from the internment and was actually granted the exemption under the condition that she would no longer live or work under the TRC's roof. Oh, that's sad. It is sad. It seemed like she did remain close mm-hmm. and some sources made it sound like she was on staff like in a sense but not but not in their residence okay if that makes sense yeah so this did mean that they needed to find a new live-in caregiver for emmy and to assist frank in the day-to-day because he was also getting up there in age and with the onset of the couple's twilight years the need was as urgent as ever mm-hmm But whoever took this job had big shoes to fill since Maria had been such a constant companion and was so dedicated to her work in the TRC home. Mm -hmm. Frank was very particular with who he hired. He wanted his house staff to have the same ideals and values as he had. He was raised as the son of a reverend and took his faith very seriously, and so he also wanted a person of faith whenever he was looking for house staff. Sometime around 1939 or 1940, he contacted a local agency in hopes of making contact with someone, and one of the very first names that would come up was Noreen O'Connor, and she would quickly become the next maid to Frank. The agency and others around her only had positive things to say about Noreen. She was a woman of faith. She was described as wonderfully kind and generous with her time and with her talents. She took a special interest in her community and gave of her time and money to help fund important programs in the local schools and was notorious for her soup broth that she would make and bring over to sick children. Oh. So she was like a really nice lady. Yeah. She would also throw these super fun parties for local children and their families whenever there was any kind of special occasion, such as the royal wedding of Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Oh, wow. She hosted many successful fundraisers to help the school and to expand the town hall in her community. For Christmas, she would pick out a personal gift for each child at the local school and would distribute those along with discount cards, kind of like special coupons, to each of the children. And the gifts were personalized. Wow. Which, like, it takes a special kind of person to do that. Yeah. Not only that, but as soon as she was hired to take care of Emmy, she jumped into the role with grace and the kind of true friendship that everyone in their final years deserves to have. Like it just naturally blossomed. She treated Emmy with dignity, care, and constant friendship until she passed away. She became an immediate addition to the family, and she didn't stop giving excellent care at the time of Emmy's passing. Frank, like I said before, was also getting older, and so she worked as both his housekeeper and secretary for a few years until Frank suffered a terrible injury in a a hunting accident. Mm. From there, Noreen jumped into the same function that she had for Emmy. She worked as a nurse and as a friend. Mm -hmm. As the next couple of years went by, their friendship only grew. She began by accompanying him around town on his errands, and eventually, with his permission and with the help of his resources, Noreen got a special car to accommodate Frank's injuries, like his condition, and would drive him wherever he needed to go. Oh, that's nice. She would also go on holiday with him, like, to really cool, exotic places. <laughs> yeah. And she would help him around. It wasn't, like, romantic. 
They just were genuinely friends yeah. and she genuinely cared yeah. for him. She was being a good caregiver. Yeah. As the early 1950s rolled around, Frank's condition continued to deteriorate and Noreen hopped into overdrive to oversee his care, to oversee the conditions in the home and his business affairs. When Frank passed away in 1952, he left a lot of his personal effects in Noreen's care and possession. He left her cars, shares from his business investments and earnings from land that he owned, and he also left her a cottage in Loxton, which was called Gardine, where she could live out the rest of her days if she chose. Oh, wow. So like, yeah, she was only 46 at this time. And so this was like a major life change for her, suddenly becoming very wealthy right. and gaining power over several notable businesses, accounts, money and properties. Wow. Yeah. It was very sudden. Yeah. And it seems like she was not working to that end. It just was a a thing that happened yeah. he after he just, passed. He was generous to her. When he trusted her. Yeah. Marie Bowles, so the German nurse and family caretaker that I talked about at the beginning, was 77 at this time. Mm -hmm. Maria had suffered from a stroke and had fallen and had broken her leg, and she was in need of care. And honestly, she was lonely and vulnerable and needed a friend. Oh, yeah. She had remained close with the Tiarchs and was still very much beloved by Frank and his whole family and house staff, even at the time of his death. Being the kind of person who seemed to find her sense of joy and purpose in taking care of others, Noreen invited Marie Bowles to come live with her at Gardine, where she would oversee her care and make sure that she was able to live out her twilight years with a friend by her side, especially since she'd become pretty much completely bedridden from her ailments. Oh, yeah. So it sounds like Noreen really did everything she could to make this time pleasant for her. Yeah. Even as she was like deteriorating in health. Yeah. Both women seemed to be excited about this arrangement and everything seemed to be going really well for both of them. Noreen was living her best life taking care of Marie, who felt safe and secure in the home with her dear friend. And that continued until 1954. Sometime in the summer of 1954, people close to Noreen and even people who just like knew of her had noticed a sudden change in her personality. The change appeared subtle at first, she would be slightly on edge or would seem a little bit paranoid or agitated, which was out of character for her. Hmm. Within a very short period of time, it became apparent, at least from the modern perspective, that there was some level of mental health crisis that Noreen was going through. Oh. She became absolutely obsessed with concepts like demons and evil in general. The paranoia also grew. Once, she'd taken a trip with some of her friends, and while they were on the trip, the group narrowly escaped a potentially pretty serious car accident, and Noreen was 100% convinced that one of her friends had fully orchestrated the accident in an attempt to kill her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Which, like, once again, super weird and out of character. Mm -hmm. When she would recall the accident to a different friend a short time later, she told this person that while, like, this whole time— Evil was seeking to destroy her, but that the spirit of Frank Tiark had saved her and that he was responsible for keeping her safe and looked after. Wow. So she was also Ooh. getting kind of like superstitious. Yeah. All of these things were just not like her. Her once calm, loving, giving demeanor was quickly morphing into one that was accusatory, paranoid, and ruled by the idea that something evil was always coming for her. It was also around this time that she began hearing voices. Mm. Various experts, such as clinical psychologists who have looked into this case, have speculated on what she could have been suffering from to cause such a sharp and devastating decline. Some wonder if she had any number of late-onset mental illnesses, 
while others have wondered if she had a tumor or maybe if she had like an addiction to prescription medication, which she would have access to with her job as a nurse. But regardless of what exactly it was that she was suffering from, it was clear that these episodes were growing in intensity and they were becoming more and more frequent. Very like Mm. all consuming. Yeah. On August 31st, 1954, Noreen had a meeting with a co-director of one of the firms left to her in Frank's will. Mm -hmm. This was a man by the name of Mr. Maurice William Bailey. Mr. Bailey was also on the board of the local parish. And so the two had a few intersecting circles and therefore spent a decent amount of time together over the years. Mm, Somewhere around like six or seven years they'd known each other. Yeah. I haven't been able to figure out exactly what the conversations were that took place during the meeting, but from what I could find, she did talk a little bit about the car accidents Mm -hmm. and whatever else it was that she was saying to Mr. Bailey made him feel uncomfortable enough for him to ask her to leave several times, opting to reschedule their meeting for another time. But Noreen insisted they should continue the meeting as usual. When they finally wrapped everything up, Mr. Bailey asked her if he would see her the following day, to which she replied with something along the lines of, I don't know. I'm so happy that I could be anywhere tomorrow. She then asked him, do you think that I've been behaving quite normally recently? This caught him off guard, but what really shocked him was when she suddenly bursted into song, singing out an old Methodist hymn at the top of her lungs. She then joyfully told him that she was just so happy because the evil had been overcome. Hmm. So it was like a very dramatic yeah. display. Like she was very uh, unruly yeah. and sort of like manic during the meeting. And then she burst into song, which <laughs> right. is very strange. And the yeah. evil, the evil's been, been handled. Don't worry. I'm so happy because the evil's gone. Hmm. Very strange behavior. Very strange. Yeah. I'm, Especially I'm, coming from like this queen of organization and caregiving. Right. So. Yeah. There's that, something that's, that's. Kind of jumping, um, jumping back for just a hot second. Everything seemed very unremarkable, right, and not dramatic at all. And then, I, so I was waiting to hear, okay, well, when's the shoe gonna drop? And it feels like it still hasn't dropped. Oh, it hasn't dropped. Okay, but it it's it's ramping up not. to it. I can tell that too. So please, <sighs> you're continue. not even gonna know. What's going to hit you? So that very same day, Noreen went back to Gardine and was casually sitting in the living room listening to the radio when suddenly she claimed that the voice on the radio changed and that a multitude of different, very disturbing voices also began playing over the radio. The voices were calling out her name and repeating the phrase, there is evil in this house over and over, which was terrifying to Noreen. So she went to check on Maria upstairs. According to Noreen, as she walked up the stairs, the closer that she got to Marie's room, the more that the air in the home seemed to change. When she reached for the doorknob, she then felt something comparable to an electrical shock. Sensing the urgency and that evil was really on the move in the home, she ran to Marie's bedside and began praying with her. It was during this time of prayer when Noreen looked down at Marie. She claimed that her face had changed and that she was giving her evil looks. As she laid her hands on her to pray, the bedding and Marie's clothing also gave Noreen another electrical shock. Marie then, this is all according to Noreen, began to speak, but the voice that was coming out of her mouth was not hers. It was deeper, more menacing, kind of like a growling voice. Mm -hmm. And it kept saying all kinds of terrible things, such as, this is my hate, over and over, like repeating very strange 
sort of disjointed, dark phrases. Yeah. Which is weird. Other voices echoed around the room, all seeming to come from Marie. And Noreen believed that Maria was in the process of being possessed by an otherworldly evil spirit. She begged the evil spirit to leave her friend, but when the situation didn't change, Noreen looked closer at Maria and noticed that all of the evil seemed to be coming from her eyes. Oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. She then became completely convinced that all of the evil she had fixated on for the couple of months leading up to this moment were all being made fully manifest in her friend, who she truly believed was possessed by the devil himself. Mm. All in all, this whole event seems to have taken several hours from the late afternoon into the evening, just for reference. Yeah. So Noreen continued to pray. She read scripture over Marie and attempted various exorcist-style rituals in an attempt to rid her of the evil. This did nothing. When she felt another electrical shock coming from the bed, that was it. She realized there was no saving her friend at this point, but she could get rid of the evil. Obviously, in the throes of a major psychotic episode, Noreen struck Marie over the head and then proceeded to rip both of her eyes out with her bare hands. Oh, no way. Can you imagine? I had a dog hair stuck on my eye the other day. Yeah. And I thought my life was over with. It was like so painful. Right. And that was a dog hair. Right. Can you imagine getting your eyes ripped out? Gosh, no. Horrifying. After the struggle was over and Marie had died, Noreen continued to assault her body, mostly her face. She struck her repeatedly in the face and head and even went as far as ripping out a tooth. Like one of Maria's teeth. Oh, gosh, why? It would later be determined that Marie Bowles had died from shock. Hmm. Death from shock in a situation like this occurs when blood pressure plummets, heart rate skyrockets, and the normal flow of blood is disrupted. There are various types of shock that can lead to death, but in this instance, poor Marie had spent her final moments on this earth terrified and in excruciating pain. Hmm. The feeling of complete and utter surprise, betrayal at being attacked by her dearest friend in the whole world, and the pain of enduring the trauma of her eyes being torn out all culminating in Marie dying in her bed somewhere between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m. on September 1st, 1954. Oh, jeez. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. Oh, my gosh. From there, Noreen laid Marie in her normal resting position on the bed, folding her arms gently across her chest, and then she covered her body with a blanket, all of which showed at least some signs of remorse and, like, care in Mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. She then went to the bathroom and washed all of the blood from her own clothing. And then she sat quietly in the home for several hours. Nobody really knows what she did. She just sat in the house. Just before 7.30 a.m. that morning, Noreen called Frank's son, Peter. She informed him that something terrible had happened to Marie and that she'd been in the grip of evil and asked him to come right away. He was roughly an hour away from Loxton, but there was something very unsettling about this phone call. So he agreed that he did need to go as soon as he could. Mm-hmm. I think he's like, he was like a pretty prominent figure in his town as well. So he had to like arrange and rearrange his meetings and schedules oh, sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so he didn't yeah. come right away, but yeah. as fast as he could. Meanwhile, just after 8 a.m., a regular housekeeper by the name of Eva Simmons had come to Gardine. Noreen informed her that something awful had happened to Marie. 
Eva had assumed that maybe Marie had suffered from another stroke or a medical incident and not that she'd been brutally murdered in her own bed. Yeah. So she took that as kind of the hint that she didn't need to complete her usual daily chores for Marie, such as making her breakfast and drawing her curtains and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. At around 10 a.m., Peter arrived to find Noreen laying on the couch dressed in her usual clothing. When he asked her what had happened, Noreen proceeded to tell him that Marie had evil in her eyes, and so she had to pluck them out. But it wasn't Marie that had died. It was the evil that had been inside of her. Very unhinged. Peter went up to Marie's room to see what was going on, and that's when he saw the truly grisly scene for himself. There was blood everywhere. Clumps of hair and a tooth were strewn all over the room. Marie's uh, eyes were also laying on the floor. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a Jeez. nightmare scene to walk into. Yeah. Horrified, Peter quickly called Dr. Cooper of Winscombe, who came to Gardine right away. He took a look at Marie's body and quickly determined that there was nothing he could do to help her and that she had passed away. Because mm-hmm. he like, I don't think he lifted up the blanket to look at her, but he's like, we're in a medical crisis at best here. Right. Otherwise, right. this is a terrible murder scene, you know? So her cause of death was listed as shock from having her eyes plucked out. Dr. Cooper drove to the Axbridge Police Department a short distance away to report the crime. He opted not to make a phone call at this time because calls were handled manually by an operator who could listen in on conversations. And since this was like the most horrifying crime to happen in the area in recent memory, Mm. he thought it would be better to report the crime in person himself. Yeah which I I actually really respect that. Sure, yeah. Like he wanted to protect, I think, everybody and anybody in this scenario. Yeah. Not just the victim, not just the TRCs, not just himself, Mm -hmm. not just the operator or the community, but all of them. Yeah. So I actually was like, that's a solid move. Yeah. When the police arrived a short time later, Noreen quickly told them what she had done and why, still insisting that she didn't kill Marie, but rather the evil inside of her. Mm. Police did what they could to examine the body in the crime scene in order to gather any and all useful evidence. But considering that this was in the 1950s, there were not as many forensic resources available to them at this time. Right. Detective Inspector L. Long quickly charged Noreen O'Connor with the murder of Marie Bowles and took her to the Weston Police Station. The following morning, Noreen was brought to a special court at Axbridge where a group of magistrates conducted an inquest. Over the course of two and a half hours, six witnesses came forward and testified. One was Eva Simmons, the housekeeper, who positively identified articles of clothing that belonged to Noreen. She also stated that it was her sincere belief that Noreen would be greatly upset if anything ever happened to Marie, and that she loved her very much and would never do something so terrible if she was in her right mind. Mm. Another was Dr. Cooper, who claimed that he knew both the victim and the murderer, and that prior to this event, he always found Noreen to be competent, loving, and compassionate about helping others. So the next was Police Sergeant C. Woodruff, and he came forward and reported that upon searching the bedroom, he found a broken comb, Marie's tooth, and several articles of Noreen's clothing in the bathroom that were wet and appeared to have been washed after being covered in blood. The pathologist on this case also came forward and reported that when he examined Marie's remains, there was evidence that she'd attempted to fight back. In one of her swollen hands, she clutched onto a chunk of hair. That oh, wow. It was like still in her hands when yeah. the body was brought to him. There was also blood on her hand. Her eyes had been ruptured, and he agreed with Dr. Cooper's opinion that she had died due to shock from her injuries to her eyes and face. 
He also agreed that the tooth appeared to have been removed post-mortem. So hmm. at least she was not alive when the tooth was pulled out. Why would she do? Okay. It's so That's, very strange. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it feels like a weird mutilation that happened. Yeah. It kind of does feel kind of like that. Very strange. So the arresting officer, Detective Long, stated that Noreen went peacefully when she was first arrested and that she had spent much of her time on the way to Axbridge in prayer. But when they arrived, she moved furniture around and got down on her knees to continue praying. And by the evening, she'd become violent, loudly and frantically repeating religious phrases. She was so out of control that a team of doctors came into the holding cell and had to move her to the cells where she would continually, like she continued loudly shouting out prayers mm. and religious phrases for hours until she finally tuckered out around 10 p.m. She was like wow. screaming at the top of her lungs. Yeah. Her trip to the courts were equally as distressing, and Noreen displayed several signs of mental distress during her travels. Peter Tiark also testified. He stated that Noreen had no financial gain in murdering Marie Bowles because she was not listed in Marie's will. In fact, he stated that there was no possible motive that he could think of that Noreen would have had at all in right. this whole thing. Yeah. Like, there was no motive. Hmm. When Noreen had the charge read to her, she pled not guilty and reserved her defense. She was held at the Holloway prison while she awaited trial. On October 15, 1954, her trial began. The defense brought forward a handful of witnesses, including Mr. Bailey, who was with Noreen just hours before the murder. He recounted everything I talked about before, namely Noreen's erratic behavior during their meeting and the strange things that she was saying that had not only made him uncomfortable, but that he remembered as being extremely odd and out of character. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. They also brought forward a couple of medical professionals. The first was Dr. Christie, a medical officer at Holloway Prison, who stated that Noreen had been under constant supervision, and he was kind of like the main one overseeing that. It was his professional opinion that she had been suffering from acute mania, which was a recognized mental illness at the time. With that diagnosis, it was also his professional opinion that Noreen wouldn't have been able to reason that what she was doing was wrong in any way. Another medical professional, Dr. Curran, who worked as a psychiatrist at St. George's Hospital, agreed with Dr. Christie's conclusion and stated that in his two very long interviews with her, he believed that she was incapable of understanding the weight of her actions and that the actions herself couldn't really be explained to her in a way that she could understand either. Like it was mm. not registering in her mind. Yeah. Noreen was not brought to the stand and no additional witnesses were brought forward and the, none of these witnesses were cross-examined by the prosecution. Hmm. Okay. Based off of the facts in this case, Noreen O'Connor had always been a person with a true desire to help and care for people. The months leading up to her heinous crime against Marie Bowles were full of evidence that she was suffering from some sort of psychosis. Mm -hmm. And there was literally no gain to be had by anybody in killing Marie. So it appeared based solely off of facts that Noreen committed this crime in the throes of some hallucination or psychotic episode and that she truly believed that Marie had been possessed by the devil and that she was not hurting or killing her friend in her mind, but fighting against the devil. Mm -hmm. Like she really believed that. Yeah. Wow. The judge at this trial, uh, Justice Byrne, advised the jury that they should be left with no shadow of a doubt if they were to find Noreen O'Connor guilty of the murder, but that they should also take into account all that the witnesses had shared while considering their verdict. That it appears that Noreen was acting out of character and was suffering from acute mania at the time of the murder. 
If they were to find her guilty, Justice Byrne instructed them that they needed to state it as guilty, but insane. Mm -hmm. The jury did not even retire to deliberate. After like literally 60 seconds, like a minute. Oh, wow. They were ready to give their verdict. The jury declared that Noreen was guilty, but insane. Yeah. It was very obvious to everyone that she was very unwell. Right. During her sentencing, Noreen expressed deep remorse for what she had done. She stated that she would have never willingly hurt a hair on Marie's head and asked if she could be sent somewhere to receive treatment for her illness rather than being locked up in prison. It was decided that Noreen was to be committed to Broadmoor, quote, until her majesty's pleasure be known, end quote, Hmm. which I guess is an old phrase used in English courts, meaning indefinitely. So they didn't assign her a time frame for treatment. Uh, They're not like five years at Broadmoor. Uh, Instead, it was more like, The people at Broadmoor needed to be very confident, like fully certain that she'd been adequately treated and was safe to be released. Right. This could be after a few years or she could spend the rest of her life there. Yeah. So we do have to consider that the mental health care at institutions like Broadmoor at this time in history were not top of the line. Not doing a great job. By any stretch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She would be treated with medication and some level of therapy and would be monitored closely, though. So after several years at Broadmoor, Noreen was released. She was able to visit Loxton again and was described both by herself and by others who interacted with her on the visit as extremely normal, Hmm. very much like her old self. Later on, she would be committed to St. Andrew's Hospital where she would remain as a detained patient until her death in 1983. In today's world, it's not hard to wonder what someone like Noreen O'Connor would have been diagnosed with and how she would have been treated, or even if a crime like this could be prevented with modern medical intervention, considering that the signs were all there, that something was amiss, like amiss in the months leading up to the murder. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to wonder how the trial and sentencing would be handled today either. And it's definitely not hard to sympathize with poor Marie, who deserves so much better than her final terrified, painful moments on this earth. And that is what I have for you today. Wow. Oh, man. That was quite the bummer. Yeah. Definitely not uh, Not a lot of real true redemption in that. I am curious about um, she gets out seven years later. and Several, is like, sorry. Oh, yeah. several. Yeah, I couldn't find an exact year <laughs> yeah. that she was released. <laughs> I just misheard you. That's okay. Gets out seven, several years later and has, you know, I guess she's well enough but then ends up going back. Into, yeah. So I'm curious about some of that time and what happened there, if it was just because she was getting older or what. But So from what I understand, it sounds like she was intentionally being moved as a detained patient, but they let her spend a little time in Loxton first. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. That, that was pretty unclear hmm. in the sources that I used. But I mean, people who interacted with her that remembered her before mm-hmm. were like, she doesn't seem any different. Like, this is not the crazy lady in the headlines. Yeah. Because, like, this was dominating the news. Sure, sure. This was all over the news. The headlines were, like, very graphic, really depressing, super sad. Wow. But, yeah. And, like, it's weird because all of the pictures of her are, like, her at the schools with the kids. Like, she's got, like, this nice, warm, friendly face. Yeah. And by all accounts, up until the summer of 1954 and into the early autumn, there was no signs that she would have ever done anything like this, you know? So strange. That was crazy. Wow. So really it's possible that she knows like 
what could have caused the break. Yeah. Or that she would have known. Sure, sure. Um, if it was something like she was dipping into the pills or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also possible that it was just a really unfortunate, very quick decline yeah. in her mental health. Yeah. Or a, a medical incident, like a tumor. Hmm. Wow. Wild. That is crazy. Hmm. Well, on that bummer note, <laughs> everybody, thank you so much for listening to the unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. Um, please make sure that you're following us on social media over on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy on Facebook. This one's doozy podcast. And if you're a patron and you haven't already joined the Facebook group, make sure that you do that. Um, how do they connect with us on that? Do they just have to search it and come find it or do you add? Yeah, I, I need to probably figure out if I can add a link into the Patreon ah, yeah, page. Yeah, that'd be good. That would make it really easy. Yeah. Maybe I could send everybody a message if I can't add it in a post, but yeah. I, I would think I'd be able to add it and maybe pin it. Yeah. So if you're not already in that group, hopefully you'll get a, a DM or uh, you can just find the Patreon link for Patreon exclusive people only. And you can make that little little request to join our Facebook group there as well. Um, otherwise, that is all we have for you this week. And we'll see you, or I guess... For exclusively now. <laughs> we'll see you later this week for another doozy thank you guys bye